My name is Mario Mamina. It is a mouthful. I am Italian. Um, I am married to my beautiful bride, Melanie. We've been married uh, coming up on 17 years here in June. And we have two sons, our oldest, Anthony, who's 14, and Lucas, who's 12. And they are both a part of the, the student ministries here under Pastor James' teaching and the volunteers here for junior high and high school. And I just want to say just thank you so much to Pastor James and the volunteers. A special thank you to them. Uh, they do an excellent job. They do an excellent job because whenever the students meet, they open up this book. They open up the Word of God, and they're taught the Word of God. And I, it's sad that it's rare, but it is. And I just thank you so much for what you do. Um, I grew up in Chicago. And then I, went, I moved to Florida, West Palm Beach, to finish university down there. And then after that, I moved to Florence, Italy, lived there for a while. Then I moved to London, England, lived there, worked and lived throughout Europe for about a year and a half before um, Melanie and I got married, and we moved to Dallas, Texas. And uh, about four and a half years ago, the Lord moved our family up to the international world city of Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, God works strangely moving us up here, but we have absolutely loved it. Um, we've loved your, um, your so-called um, rush hour traffic has, <laughs> has spoiled us greatly. Uh, we've kind of ruined us to going back to any of those big cities again. We absolutely love it here, but most of all, the people we've loved in this church, the way that you guys have loved us, come around us. Thank you so much. We, we really have loved it. Um, so... What we've been uh, studying here for the past month, some pastors have come up. We've been looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and I have it, I believe, on the next screen on the, on the slides here. Um, but it's a familiar verse because we've been studying it. Um, it says, they, are, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Who's they? This was the early church, the dis- the Holy Spirit just descended upon the disciples. 3,000 people get saved, and the church just starts exploding and growing. And this is what they're busy doing, is they are devoting themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. And this morning, we're going to be talking about prayer and being reminded of the importance of prayer. Um, the church's mission is, is pretty clear what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, we come to Christ, we're saved, redeemed, and now what? This is what we're supposed to do. Jesus gave this command. He said to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's it. It is, not, it is a very spiritual thing that we are to do. We are to, take, we are to be vessels for the Lord and go and reach people, the nations, the state of Nebraska, the city of Lincoln, our neighborhoods, find people who don't know Jesus yet and to bring them to the Savior and baptize them and to teach them everything He's commanded in this book. That's our job. How are we going to reach them, though? How are we going to do that? Is it, going to be a, is it going to be a better building, a church building, maybe a new church building? Is it going to be 
Uh, perhaps better worship, a new sound system. That might do it. Our fancy lights. Um, we're looking for a pastor right now, a new dynamic pastor. That's going to do it. A new program within the church. Maybe substitute something else that we might think is more relevant than God's Word. But Really, there is nothing more relevant than God's Word. No, it's none of those things because, you see, what we're engaged in is a spiritual thing. And we cannot achieve our mission apart from Christ. A little analogy. So what I do now, I work for a commercial lighting company here in Lincoln, and I'm a manager for two branches, and my salesman and myself, we go out to all our customers and we sell them the best light possible for them to achieve brightness, um, color, everything. And in fact, we did the lights here in the parking lot for Faith Bible Church a few years back. And in preparation for that, we put together the specification of the best LEDs possible, uh, the best energy, the best brightness, the layout. So everything was covered when, when the lights were to come on. There was even light throughout the parking lot, gave a fantastic warranty, all these things. And there was one thing that we did in order to really make sure that they functioned the way that they were created. And what we did is we had to turn on a switch. And when we turned on that switch, they illuminated the parking lot and did what they were made to do. And the same way, that's prayer for us. Prayer is the switch to the power of God in whatever we do as a church, whatever we do individually for the Lord. Sometimes maybe you find yourself doing something, you're like, God, this is not working out. A good litmus test is, did you pray about that? Are you on your knees praying? We need God's power infused into what we do because it's all about Him, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so, we're going to be looking at this power, and it was hard to decide a little bit kind of where to go because the Bible's just chock full of prayer. I mean, we could go to the Old Testament, and we could go look at the... Um, on the next slide, we could look at Abraham, you know, the first prayer in the Bible when he's plumbing the mercies of God and praying to God. We could, we could have looked at that. We could have gone through prayers of Samuel, Hannah, Solomon, David, the Psalms, prayers of Job, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. I mean, just keep going. So many prayers throughout Scripture. It should get our attention. The prophets, too. Or we could go to the New Testament. We could go to the epistles where, says, where Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. How about Ephesians? Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. How about Colossians? Be devote, devote yourselves to prayer. Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Have you stopped breathing lately? Have you breathed? You, you breathe without ceasing, don't you? Otherwise, that would be not good. In the same way, we're to pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing. Or we could go to the ultimate example our Savior, Jesus Christ, we're to be like Him, to emulate Him. And we can see all throughout the Gospels what the disciples observed about Jesus, where His power came from, what He did 
when he wasn't doing miracles and teaching. He withdrew from there in Matthew. He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And then we look at Mark. Mark observed it a little bit more. He said, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And they said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Keep watching and praying. This is, this is Jesus' routine. And then Luke, I mean, Luke, there's at least eight times that I count. And there's more than that, but I just put, that's all I could fit on the slide of Jesus getting away and spending time one-on-one with the Lord. He did it a lot. And he did amazing things. And this was the key. The power from the Father. How are we doing on this? Do you see the correlation with prayer and then solitude? Spending time dedicated to pray? How are we doing on that? Now, I don't, my goal is not to make us feel terrible this morning. Uh, You know, you could preach on evangelism, giving, and prayer and pretty much make anybody feel guilty because you can never do enough, you know. You never feel like you can, but there's grace here. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He knows it's hard, and that's why he gives us a whole book of examples on how to do it. So we can take a deep breath. And now we know this is really important, so teach us. Teach us how to pray, Lord. The disciples never asked for anything from Jesus on, Lord, teach us how to walk on water. That was awesome. Or how to turn water into wine. No, it was, Jesus, teach us how to pray. That's it. That's what they asked him. Because it's hard. That's why. It's just really hard. One, thing, one reason why I think it's hard to pray is because it, we have to be dependent upon the Lord. We like to just handle things on our own. We go to the big things. The big things we go to God for. But what about the little things? Just every day. Remember? Pray without ceasing. All the little things we're supposed to go to God for. Um, and then the other thing, it takes hard work. And take, hard work takes discipline. It's a, it's, a, it's a muscle. Prayer is a muscle to build that muscle up. My son Lucas gave me a book for Christmas. It's entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Sadly, I am frequently in a hurry. And God has gotten my attention on this. And in his book, there's two things here he said. He said, a survey from Microsoft found that 77% of young adults answered yes when asked, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. Can you identify with that? Do you remember those of you here who are over 40, before cell phones and computers, when you could actually just have a linear thought for a long time and just stare out a window and daydream or pray. You're waiting in line or in a car ride or train ride and there's nothing else to do. So you just pray. He has another quote here. In 2000, before the digital revolution, our attention span was 12 seconds. But since then, it's dropped to 8 seconds. To put things into perspective, a goldfish has an attention span of 9 seconds. This is tragic, is it not? I'm just hoping that there's at least one more person in this room who struggles with prayer like I do. Or when I close my eyes and I, it doesn't take long for me to wonder, you know, who's starting for the Huskers today? 
you know? What about this business meeting I've got to go to? It's hard. Um, but today we're going to look at this text. I picked Mark chapter 9 because it's a great text. And I narrowed it down to five principles of prayer that we can apply to our prayer life to help us. Try to make it as simple as possible because my wife Melanie says this often. We'll go to seminars and they'll teach on what we're supposed to do and we'll walk away and Melanie's like, oh yeah, that's so good. I get it now. Like, it's, it's right. I need to do it. But they never show you how to do it. They never tell you how to do it. And she's right. And so hopefully this can be principles to help us to pray. And they all do start with the letter P even. I tried to make it real simple on how to pray. So in Mark 9, we're going to start here. Here we go. So verse 14. Actually, we're going to start in verse 2, chapter 9, just for context. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So where are they, for context? They're in Galilee. You can see on the map here, it's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, that big body of water. It's a large area. And from the beginning of Mark 1, this is, they're, just, they're going all throughout this region. And Jesus is doing miracles. He's teaching his disciples and the people and the synagogues. This is where they are. So they, he brings them up to a mountain, either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. We're not sure which one. But he brings them to the top of the mountain and he's transfigured before them. His glory is revealed and they're just in awe. They see the Messiah in his glory, his deity. It's awesome, mountaintop experience. And then they come down the mountain. And what happens when they come down the mountain, we're going to fast forward to verse 14. So they come down the mountain. When they came back to the disciples, the other nine disciples were standing there, in a large crowd, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Now, this is most likely an unsettling scene. Use your imagination. Put yourself in the moment. You, if you've ever seen uh, two Jewish men argue, it's, you think like they're going to go to fisticuffs with each other, but that's just kind of how they are. They're animated in how they argue. And it's like an Italian. I, I can identify with this. So there's arguing going on, maybe dirt flying in the air, lots of people screaming, shouting, crying, defending, accusing. But what are they arguing about? Let's find out. Verse 15. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Jesus is who they're talking about. So when when the crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed. It doesn't tell us why they were amazed. Another word used for this may be disturbed, like, this is just an, a disturbing scene. And they see Jesus, and they run up to him. And in verse 16, Jesus asked them, What are you discussing with them? In verse 17, And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Let's stop here. This is a very interesting observation that Matthew makes right here. Just that little piece of paper you have saved, just... Hold your hand in Mark. Flip over to Matthew 17. Verse 14. Matthew 17, verse 14. It's subtle, but it's important. It's really cool how Matthew identifies this. He says, 
When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. Falling on his knees before Jesus. So the first P in our principles of prayer would be our posture. This man, one man out of the crowd, perhaps pushes his way through the disciples and the scribes and gets to the front, right to Jesus, and boom, falls to his knees right before him and cries out to him. He's not embarrassed by everybody around him. doesn't matter. He just falls to his knees. And here we can see by his posture, we can see the inside of the man. By the outward appearance, we see the inside appearance, don't we? We know that this man's desperate. He's, he, he's at the end of his rope. That's when we go to our knees. Um, why is it doing something like this for us today would be uncomfortable? Definitely in public, but maybe even in private, you're like, oh, this is silly. I'll be on my knees. Have you practiced your posture in prayer? Are you that desperate to just be in the presence of the Lord and just lay your burden down before him? I've been going through something myself in my life, and I've laid down prostrate before the Lord, just pleading with him. Um, you know, we see a lot of examples here in the Bible of people kneeling before, like King Solomon dedicating the temple. Daniel prayed when he prayed. Uh, he was kneeling. Our posture can help greatly in getting our hearts and minds to submit and focus on the one to whom we pray. Now, you don't always have to kneel, always have to lay out prostrate before the Lord. I mean, if you're driving a car, that would be difficult. I get it. We're to pray without ceasing. So you pray all the time, but there's moments where it's hard to get the mind and the heart to get engaged. And by physically doing it, you're getting your mind and heart to follow. It's a good practice to have. Maybe that posture is just holding on to your spouse or a family member or friend when in the storm and just saying, Jesus, help us right now. That's your posture. Whatever it looks like, A.W. Tozer said, the goal of every Christian should be to live in a state of unbroken worship. Let's continue in the story. So in Mark chapter 9 here again. So, and one of the crowd, in verse 17, answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. So now we know why this man is so desperate. I would be desperate too. Oh my goodness. This child, this boy, he's foaming at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, stiffens out. He's, he's out of control. He's a slave to this demon that's in him, that he cannot, he cannot overpower it. The disciples can't do anything either. This is awful. And this is just like Satan. He came to steal and destroy. That's what he does. But this man is kneeling in front of the one, the good shepherd, who came to give life and give it abundantly. And John records in 1 John that Jesus came to destroy the work of, works of the devil. So, I mean, he's at the right, he's at the right person right here. But notice the disciples could not cast it out. That is key. In verse 19, Jesus answered him and said, O unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long should I put up with you? 
Bring him to me. It kind of seems, maybe it seems harsh to you. You're like, man, that's kind of harsh, Jesus, to say that. But there's a reason why, if you read from the beginning of Mark all the way up to this point, there are multiple times that Jesus has been casting out demons. I counted at least six times in the first eight chapters that Jesus has already done this in the region of Galilee. And it says right in the first chapter of Mark that Mark records, uh, it says that immediately the news about Jesus spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. He went into the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. I mean, this man heard about Jesus. He knew that Jesus could do this. Maybe someone who was possessed by a demon had actually come to the man and talked to him. Yet there's still some unbelief going on here. And Jesus is just, just, don't you guys get it? And in verse 20, they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, when he saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And, he, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, he said, from childhood. Now, this has been going on a long time. This man has wanted relief for his son for a very long time. We don't know how long. It said since he was a child. Maybe he's, a boy, he's 12, maybe. Maybe he's 9, 8. Maybe since he was 4. It doesn't matter. One day would be too long. But it's been possibly years that this poor boy has been under the influence of this demon. It says from a long time. And this brings us to our second P principle in prayer is for us to have patience in prayer. You know, God is not a genie in a bottle that we rub the bottle and then what are your three wishes and we, this is what I want, God, let's go ahead and do it, let's go. It's not how it works. Sometimes he's quick to answer, but sometimes, more times than not, he is, in our, from our perspective, slow to answer. God, please just answer now. Why are you taking so long? I'm in pain and I just want relief and, but it's just, he's working in us. He's ripening us. I mean, we, he's working. Patience is needed. And if you're in a moment right now where you've just been praying for something for a long time and you're like, it's not working. I just, I need relief. My heart really does go out for you, to you. I, I've been dealing with something as well and it's hard to just, Stay in there and you, you pray to him because that's where God wants you. God wants you right on your knees in front of him all the time, relying on him. There's a verse that God has shown me recently, the Psalm 27, 14, that says, Wait patiently on the Lord. Be brave and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait patiently on the Lord. I love this verse because, again, it fits kind of what we're doing it shows us how to wait patiently because we're not good at waiting patiently. I'm not. But it tells us how to be brave and let your heart take courage. That's how you wait patiently. Think about Abraham. Remember when Abraham was given his promise and he was to wait 
for Isaac, for the seed that was going to be promised to him. But he didn't wait. He waited a while. And then he just lost it. He's like, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to forget it. I'm doing my own thing. And it caused a lot of problems. Be brave. It takes a lot of bravery and courage to hang in there and to wait on the Lord. He will, he will answer in his appointed time. And from our perspective, it's slow. But remember, we know from Second Peter, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. God is always about timing. If you look throughout Scripture, he's right on time. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for us. Do not lose heart in doing good, for in time you will reap if you do not grow weary. Um, Was it the Psalms 31? But as for me, I will trust the Lord. My times are in your hands. He is right on schedule. We just went to London a couple of weeks ago, and we followed in the footsteps of the English reformers. It was awesome. And we got to see, of course, uh, Elizabeth Tower connected to the Parliament Building with Big Ben, you know, Big Ben t- Tower there. Well, it's, it is said that that clock, people could, will set their watch to that clock because that is, that's right on point with the actual time. Well, that Big Ben has nothing on the timing of God. His time is exact, and he will answer at the right appointed time And moving on here, so in verse 22, it has often thrown, both, thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is an interesting section here that I do need to touch on if you go to the next slide because we have here, it's, it's weird because he's saying, I do believe, but then help my unbelief. And, you know, all of us can identify with this. John Calvin said that this man, he declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may, not appear, may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in, in himself. Sometimes we're like, God, I know you can do this. I believe you can. But can you really? Am I the only one? And so just for clarity's sake, we can use, we can use belief and faith interchangeably. But here, for the sake of clarity, belief is an actual intellectual acceptance of facts. Faith has the added idea of trust and commitment. It's this added idea trust commitment so for example we know that prayer is important we know that prayer is powerful we know prayer we should do it yes we all agree prayer but we lack the faith sometimes to actually do it because we're like "Eh, it's not gonna work for me though or this prayer this need is not that important god doesn't really care about that no we have we need to have belief and the faith to pray And so the next slide we have here, the next P, is we have 
promises in prayer. So we have our posture, our patience in prayer, and now promises in a prayer. What gave this man the belief that he had, as little as it was, and that's okay. It doesn't matter how little. He's got some. That's enough. Is he knew that Jesus was capable because of what he did around the region, and so he's saying, I do believe. What do we have? We have a whole Bible here, full, chock full of his promises. What verses do you have stored in your heart for when you lack belief that God can come through? I personally like Philippians. I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That, that builds my faith. Or the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Those, those truths, man, they just fire me up and then I get down on my knees and say, no, I'm, I'm in on this. I know your character, God. I know you will come through. I know you will answer my prayers. I know you will help me. So we need to remember the promises in prayer. And moving on to verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and don't ever enter, do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. It's awesome. This, this demon was deaf. And he couldn't hear the disciples. The disciples were trying on their own to figure this thing out. They couldn't do it. But Jesus shows up. It doesn't matter, the demon's deaf. He can hear every word Jesus coming out of, coming out of Jesus' mouth. Come out. And he comes out. And then it looked like he was dead. The boy looked like he was dead. And then Jesus takes him by the hand and raises him up. And then Jesus says, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. That is power. The next principle in prayer is power in prayer. What's the status of those we are trying to meet, reach in our mission? The Bible tells us they are lost, slaves of unrighteousness. They are dead. They are enemies of Christ and they are spiritually dead. How in the world are we going to reach them without the power of Jesus Christ right behind us in everything that we do? There's no way we'll be able to reach them. That's why we have got to be a praying church and to pray individually in your life. Spurgeon said, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon from London, he said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. That's, he knew the power of prayer. There's a story that's been told of Spurgeon. It's different variations, but here's the gist of it. He once led his leaders around his tabernacle, showing them the building and outside, and then he said, let me show you the boiler room, the room which warms the church and powers the facility. And he walked them inside and opened the doors to a room with 300 people praying inside for a prayer meeting. He turned to his leaders and said, you see there, 
That's where the power within our church lies. That should be Faith Bible Church. So we can make a huge impact for Christ. Because that's, that's the result. And I said to have your little piece of paper in Luke. If we flip over to Luke, let's go there real quick. Luke chapter 9, verse 42. This is the fifth principle in prayer. Because you may think, well, what's the point, right? What's the end result? The end result is this, and I love the fact that Luke observes this. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Here's verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is the product of prayer. When you just look back and you go, wow, God did this. We prayed. We prayed for this. We prayed so long and hard, and then God showed up, and he did amazing things, and all we can say is, wow, I'm amazed at God. That's the product and purpose of prayer. D.L. Moody wrote in his tiny book, Prevailing Prayer, those who have left the deepest impressions on this sin-cursed earth have been men and women of prayer. I want to be like that. And then just make God famous. Just fulfill the mission for Him. But we need to pray in order to do that. In closing, I want to speak to two groups this morning. Perhaps you're here and you've never approached Jesus in belief or faith. Maybe that's you this morning. And looking back at the story, we see the desperation of this man, the Father, who's in, who has a need that only Jesus can fulfill. And maybe sitting right where you are, you are right where he was. And your need is salvation. Nothing, no one, maybe you've tried everything, nothing can fulfill that need. Only Jesus can. And like him, you're saying, okay, I believe, I just help with my unbelief. You know, that's a great place to be because at the end of the story of Luke, from Luke's perspective, he talks about when Jesus taught, the, or excuse me, Matthew, it was in Matthew, when Jesus, after this happens, talks about the mustard seed. You only need to have a faith the size of a mustard seed. That's it. To come to Christ, you just have to have enough to know who to go to who can help you, and then he'll help you with your faith from there out. But start there. And know that Salvation comes through belief, faith, but then also prayer because we know from Scripture it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So where you are right now, I plead with you to do that. Don't, don't wait another day because the Bible is clear that he who has the Son of God, Jesus, has the life. That's heaven. That's a, an abundant life here on earth in terms of being able to walk with him through hard times and having his help and talking to him whenever you want. You have the life if you have Jesus, but then there's a warning. It says that he who does not have the Son of God, who doesn't have Jesus, he does not have the life. And I don't know how you make it through this world without him. And then eternally, there's a heaven and there's a hell, and that 
that leads to hell, the separation eternally from him. So do that today. Now to the church, quickly. We are in search of a full-time preaching pastor right now. We need to be praying for this man. We have to. Um, If we're to fulfill our mission, this man must be a praying man. There's a book by E.M. Bounds. He was a pastor during the American Civil War. He wrote a great little book, and I put two, these two books, these two resources on the slide. They're very small, skinny little books. In three hours, you can knock them out, read them. I'm a slow reader. It took me about three to knock them out, and um, they're just fantastic books. But he's written a book called Power Through Prayer, and he says in this book, the preaching man is to be the praying man. Prayer is the preacher's mightiest weapon. The pulpit of this day is weak in praying. Every preacher who does not make prayer a mighty favor in his own life and ministry is weak as a factor in God's work and is powerless to project God's cause in this world. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? This man must be a praying man, and we must pray for him. And we need not only a pastor who fits qualities we can see hourly, I mean, he may be dynamic, but does he pray? Does he walk closely with the Lord? If we don't, church, there's a warning given by, when I, in Texas, I attended a Denton Bible Church from time to time, Pastor Tommy Nelson down there. I learned a lot from him. And one thing he warned for a church that does not pray, here's the warning that we must heed. He says, first, here's what happens. The church starts failing at its mission. Our mission is to reach lost souls for Christ. We start failing. That's the first step. Second, we go ahead and we lower the target. We give ourselves a little bit something easier that we can achieve. We change and shift the mission around a little bit. That's the second step. The third step is then we become an intellectual repository for biblical knowledge. We just become smarter sinners. But we're not really doing anything with it, the knowledge. We're not... We're not applying it to ourselves. And then he says, the next step is, um, then we become an emotional place of spiritual excitation. Meaning on Sunday mornings, we have marvelous uh, worship aerobics. That's the next step. And then after that, we become legalistic when we don't pray. Then we'll become legalistic and we start coming up with our own rules And we really make a big deal out of it when other people don't follow the rules. And this makes us feel important because we can't remember the last time God did something miraculous in our midst. Then there's, it gets worse if you can think about it. The next is we become political, only concerned with social issues. Again, feeling good about our opinions. We've moved away from spiritual things altogether. Two more rungs that we go down on. The next is we commit to religious tradition. Just going through the motions. Why are we even here on Sunday? I don't know. This is what we're supposed to do. It's what we've always done. And then the last is you get a city like Lincoln with a bunch of these churches that are like this, that are prayerless churches where the glory of God is departed from. And we no longer start penetrating souls for Christ. Collectively, 
And then we take on the American business model of entrepreneurship. And we, we um, start working with one another. We start to take one another's members from churches. How does he put it? He says, we start competing with other churches for an existing swill of Christians moving between them. That's when we don't look any different from the world because we are trying to do a spiritual thing without the power of the Holy Spirit behind us. That would be tragic. And we need to pray and have prayer. Really quick, I want to tell a very quick story. My time is up. We just, again, got back from London. There's a, a man there in London. Uh, a stat was his now a statue. In the early 1800s, he was Major General Henry Havelock. There's a street on the north side of town named Havelock. I don't know if it's tied to this man. I tried to look that up. I don't know. But if you go to England, every major city within England virtually has this man's name on a street, a park, garden, park bench, business, school, Havelock. Who is this guy? Now his statue stands in Trafalgar Square. This guy was a general in the early 1800s in India for the British Army. It was a time when Brit the British believed it was impossible for a man to be a Christian and a, and a valiant warrior, a respectable warrior. It just, the two didn't meet. And when Havelock became a follower of Christ, he determined, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to change the rules on this. I'm going to show the world that you can do this. He came to Christ on his way down into India to serve, leading men, his platoon of men, his regiment. He would have voluntary Bible studies, and they would come and show up in the mornings, and he would sing hymns with them and read Scripture and pray with them. If his men were to march at 6 a.m., he would get up at 4 a.m. and pray. He would always, whatever it was for that day, he'd get up two hours early and pray for his men and for that day for the Lord's power. His men were, became so well behaved that the commander-in-chief said, man, if, if Havelock could just have all the men, that would be so great because only his men are just so well behaved and they just function so well as soldiers. He would be on the battlefield leading his men, cannons firing, earth trembling beneath them with explosions and he'd be shouting scripture get up, men, let's go and charge the hill. And scripture's coming out of his mouth, rallying the troops, getting him to go. Seven times it was recorded that his horse was shot under, from underneath him in about 30 battle engagements. This man was awesome. But what made him awesome was prayer. And then the product of his prayer was godly men. And then in 1839... He paved the way for the freedom of religion throughout the whole military for Britain. And then people stood back at that point and said, wow, God's amazing. It was said that you couldn't, ha you couldn't have two together. But look what God did through one man who prayed. What could God do through Faith Bible Church who prayed and impacted Lincoln? And then all of Lincoln said, wow, God's in that place. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this morning. In your word, <clears throat> help us and teach us to pray. Thank you for being a compassionate, loving, kind, 
full of loving kindness and mercy, God, merciful God. Where you know our weakness and then you, you just come alongside us and you help us in it and you use one another, you use our body to help each other and when one's weak, the other's strong and, and we, we get through this together. But God, our heart's desire is that you would do a mighty work in this church and we pray for this pastor that you've brought our way that you would use him mightily and that he would walk closely with you and that we would make a big impact, continue to make a big impact in this city so that ultimately we would all say with one voice, wow, you are an amazing God. In Jesus' name, amen.